On today's episode of The Glue Guys, I am going to answer some of your most pertinent mailbag questions. And then Dan Grunfeld, the son of Ernie Grunfeld, the longtime NBA executive, he's written a book about his family. It's extremely interesting. It's called By the Grace of the Game. It's about three generations of his family, the wild different turns that they've taken from surviving the horrors of the Holocaust to all the way to running basketball teams to himself. He was a college basketball player at Stanford where he knows the Lopez twins. Uh, we're going to talk to Dan Grunfeld about his book. It's really cool. Uh, but first, we'll get to the intro and we will answer your emails. Before we get the show started, this podcast is brought to you by DirecTV Stream. Get your TV together with the best of live and on demand. Learn more directtv.com Welcome back to the Glue Guys. This is Mike here. Brian is not here. Check us out on Twitter at BKGlueGuysNetsDaily.com. The Athletic. Get yourself behind that paywall at TheAthletic.com slash Glue Guys. Quick little hint. Okay, don't get it. You didn't get this from me, but I'm hearing through the grapevine there may be some special athletic subscription deals coming up around Black Friday. Just wait. Hold on to that URL. Grab it. Put it in your pocket. TheAthletic.com slash Glue Guys. Maybe a special deal if you wait around for Black Friday. It's a great gift to give someone. And another great gift is from our guest today, Dan Grunfeld, the son of Ernie Grunfeld. He's written a book, By the Grace of the Game. I'm going to talk to Dan about his book. It's about his family, their journey through basketball. But first, this is a special weekend, just hangout sesh. And I really wanted to get some good conversation going uh, just to give you something to, to chew over for the whole weekend. We're going to dive into the mailbag, netspod at gmail.com. A couple of quick questions. And this first one is a burner from Cherboy Glenn. Glenn asks, what do you think Katie's responsibility is with the Kyrie situation? They're such great friends. I don't understand why he isn't constantly in Kyrie's ear. We could do something really special here. The vaccine isn't a big deal. Okay, well, let's first address that. So that seems simple, right? It seems simple to send a quick text to be like, hey, Kyrie, we should play basketball again and you shouldn't uh, be as anti-vaccine as you are. The thing is, like, very few of us are actually, you know, just think about your regular relationships. Do you have an aunt or uncle uh, who maybe is anti-vaccine? Do you hound them consistently about that? Right now, it's a little bit of a different situation. Uh, when it comes to teammates on a team and it's so public, I also think Kevin Durant has a pretty good read on Kyrie Irving and he knows most likely that if he is really pushy with Kyrie, that's just going to turn Kyrie off. And so I kind of last episode made fun of Steve Nash a bit. Steve Nash was asked, you know, have you been talking to Kyrie Irving? It says, yes, we've been talking, but not about basketball. And that not, it doesn't infuriate me, but it bugs me a bit because I think what Steve was trying to act was that, hey, our relationship's bigger than basketball. I'm trying to show that we have this bigger relationship when really like you're his coach and Kyrie Irving loves basketball. So you probably should be talking basketball with him like that would be a normal conversation. What's Kevin Durant's responsibility? He actually has none. If I'm just being really honest, he can't it cannot be on his shoulders, his injured shoulders 
mind you, because he's not playing in the Magic game tonight. It can't be on his shoulders to have to convince Kyrie Irving to get the vaccine, right? That's an NBA Nets thing to provide Kyrie with the best information. It's on his agent, which I don't really think he has an agent at this point. Um, and it's on Nike, the, the company that sponsors him the most, to have those conversations with Kyrie to tell them, to tell him how important it is that uh, he should play basketball, right? He can, they can say those things to him, but it's really just not on Kevin Durant. You know, Kevin Durant is having one of the great offensive efficient seasons of all time. And he also doesn't have to play doctor to the situation. Can he, can he help? Right? Yeah, he could. I, I think that the best way Kevin Durant could be proceeding in this circumstance, which I he probably is doing is just sort of being open to Kyrie and keeping the lines of communication open. Cause I think less communication with Kyrie is worse for the situation. I don't think isolation is good in this situation. I don't, I don't think Kevin has any responsibility. It shouldn't be on him. He understands what they need to do and what he needs to do. I haven't fully diagnosed this idea yet. This team feels like unless if Harden goes up a level, they're going to need a little something extra to win a championship. And Kyrie not being a part of the team damages their championship hopes greatly, not just minimally, but greatly. Unless if Harden like really steps it up a level. Sure, it's Kevin Durant probably could pressure Kyrie a little bit, I guess. But again, I don't think that's the most effective thing. I think the thing that's effective is just trying to reason with him and keep it open, keep the conversation open, and actually talk about basketball, unlike what Steve Nash is doing. Next up, your boy, Matt Parker. Matt Parker, great friend of the show. Now, he even, uh, in this email, corrected himself. He sent one email. And then literally 34 minutes later, he corrected himself. But his general question is, if Harden opts out and Kyrie opts out, that the Nets would have a max slot. And then they could sign someone for that max slot and re-sign Harden with bird rights. Matt corrected himself because it doesn't work that way. And everyone should know this. Uh, if the Nets, if Harden opts out and they renounce his rights to open up that salary cap space, they then can't sign him above the salary cap or max money, which is what it's going to take for Ky for James Harden. But I wanted to talk about James Harden for a second because there's been some interesting discussion regarding James Harden and his future in Brooklyn lately. First, Sam Amick from The Athletic, which you could read at theathletic.com slash glue guys. You have a subscriber to The Athletic. Uh, Sam had a story that was essentially from the perspective of 76ers management regarding the Ben Simmons situation. And the big headline was that the 76ers have a list of 30 players that they would trade that they would trade Ben Simmons for. On that list was James Harden. And in the story, and then Keith Pompey, I believe his name is, uh, one of the re veteran reporters who covered the 76ers from Philly, also mentioned James Harden as a possibility as a Ben Simmons replacement on some level in a trade. And... The thinking goes that if Harden opts out at the end of the year because he did not sign the extension with the Nets, that the Nets and 76ers could do a sign and trade where Ben Simmons is sent to Brooklyn and James Harden is sent to Philly. We know why Philly would do it. James Harden's a better player by about 10 times magnitude than James than Ben Simmons. 
Why would the Nets do it? They would only do it if they know for a fact they're not going to have James Harden back. If for some reason something happens this season that leads James Harden to believe that Philadelphia is a better situation for him going forward than Brooklyn. And I just want to analyze that situation for a second. Because so much discussion is like when this comes out, be like, oh my gosh, is James Harden going to go to Philly? Right? Oh, he loves Daryl Morey. They have such a close relationship. Let's just take the 2,000, 20,000 foot view of both franchises for a second. Okay. One has Kevin Durant, who is the best player in the NBA. The other has Joel Embiid, who is a top five player, but there's still a gap between the two. Okay. But that is true. The Nets technically still have Kyrie Irving. And let's say Kyrie, they have to trade Kyrie. Whoever they get for him is in place of him. The Nets are a much better situation than what's happening in Philly. The Nets are a better team right now. And they will continue to be a better team throughout the entire year. The only way I see that is possible for James Harden to be wanting out of Brooklyn to go to Philly is if there's a major injury to Kevin Durant and the team implodes around James Harden that it becomes such a drastic situation, knowing that Kyrie won't come back and Katie's hurt, that he views it as, oh, if I'm going to win my championship, it's impossible here because Kevin Durant's hurt and Kyrie Irving refuses to return to the team for whatever reason that is. Then, yes, maybe Philly. But that's a really small, very small percent chance. Compared to in Philly... Joel Embiid is the best player, but he is extremely injury prone. He gets hurt every year. He's been better about it o- over the recent part of his career as he's gotten older, but he's still a seven-footer who weighs as much as he weighs, plays the game the way he does. He's He has a chance of getting hurt. The rest of that team, while good, without Ben Simmons, isn't all that great. It's good. Seth Curry, Maxie. Tobias Harris, all of those guys are good, fine. They aren't Kevin Durant with the potential of Kyrie Irving being back on the team and James Harden being there. I I, I know it's a possibility, and it's funny that these things seem to come out of Daryl Morey-led teams. You know, these scenarios, these mega superstar scenarios, of course this guy is going to want to go to Brooklyn or of course he's going to go to Philadelphia. But if we're being real, I think it's such a small percent chance, so small, that Harden in a year is going to view the Philadelphia situation better than what's happening in Brooklyn. Just because Daryl Morey is running the Philadelphia 76ers. It's not like this is a coach he loves, is coaching that team, and there's players on the team that he loves. As far as we know, he has no relationship to Joel Embiid, no relationship to Seth Curry, no relationship to Maxi. I'm sure they know each other. It seemed like him and Kevin Durant and maybe Kyrie Irving were friends at one point uh, before playing in Brooklyn. Now they've continued that and they've wanted to play together. Harden wanted to go to Brooklyn and he's in Brooklyn. Maybe he wanted to go to Philly, but he's not in Philly right now. Uh, so I don't really know if like I'm not I'm not stressing out about it, though. I do wonder 
the Kyrie Irving Ben Simmons swap is becoming more and more likely every day to me. All right, let's take a quick break. Coming back, we are going to talk to Dan Grunfeld. Dan, again, the son of Ernie Grunfeld, longtime NBA executive. He has a book out called By the Grace of the Game. We're going to talk to Dan right after the break. All right, joining me now, Dan Grunfeld. Dan, thank you so much for being here. Um, tell people, obviously, you know, we're talking for a reason. You have written a book about your family. Tell people who you are and what the book's about. Uh, give them a little background of you. I'll do that. My first of all, thanks for having me, man. So yeah. uh, played collegiate basketball at Stanford uh, 2002 to 2006. We were the number one team in the country my sophomore year. Uh, so we had a good run back in the day at Stanford. I played eight years professionally after that, mostly internationally. So a year in Germany, three in Spain and four in Israel. And my dad, Ernie Grunfeld, was a longtime NBA basketball player, longtime executive. So he was the GM of the New York Knicks, the Milwaukee Bucks and the Washington Wizards. So fairly well-known guy in the sports world, in the basketball world, but few people know that he's the only player in NBA history whose parents survived the Holocaust. And so that's my grandparents. And so I've been writing a book for the last five years about my family's history, and it comes out in a few weeks. That's so amazing. What, what started you on this journey? Because, you know, think about like it, that's a lot to dig up within the family. So what, what made you want to go on this journey to start off? I've always loved to write. And so when I was playing professional basketball, I had contributing writing positions to several websites. So I was just telling stories, writing. It's something that was just always in me. And I knew that this was the big one, you know, because my grandmother and I, and by the way, she's 96 years old. She lives in the Bay Area, 25 minutes away from uh, me and my wife. She's doing amazing. But, you know, she has a, a very big survival story in the Holocaust. And so it always impacted me so much. And to see kind of what basketball did for my dad and for my family, it meant the world to me. So it was a story I wanted to tell. And so you know, it took a year and a half of research, uh, probably a year of pretty intense writing to get the first draft done. And we've just been working on it since then. But uh, yeah, just given how meaningful it's been to me and what the game has done for my family, it's just a story I always dreamed of telling. It's it's by the grace of the game. Is it in the book? I'll hold it up for you. I actually, um, <laughs> I, I just, you know, there's been supply chain it's issues. It's a beautiful so cover. It's very Thank compelling. You. I'll show you again. Yeah, I think yeah. we did a good job on it. Uh, you can see here that there's a forward by Ray Allen, and I could tell you a little bit more about that later. Uh, sure. But yeah, because there's been such supply chain issues in the uh, in the United States, I held my book in my hands for the first time uh, last weekend. So it's uh, it's oh still pretty gosh. fresh for me, too. So tell people about your your grandparents' story because I mean obviously it's it's a dramatic I mean I don't want to say dramatic it's a it's just a wild tale I mean just the what how did they get here to America basically what was the yeah track? listen man, it, it it is dramatic and so my grandparents are both from Transylvania on the border of Romania and Hungary that's where my dad is from and so uh, when the Nazis invaded my grandmother happened to be visiting an older sister in Budapest. And so the rest of her family was taken to Auschwitz, but my grandmother had a chance to survive. And so uh, if, you know, if you're familiar with Holocaust history, Raoul Wallenberg is a Swedish diplomat, and he's considered one of the greatest heroes of the Holocaust. He's credited for saving roughly 100,000 Jews, and my grandmother was one of them, and he actually saved her life twice. And so she has a big story where you know she was on the run, and she had false documents, and then she was apprehended and put in the Budapest ghetto. And at the last minute, she avoided a massacre, and it was Wallenberg who saved her. And so, and my grandfather had it a little bit easier, although he didn't have it easy. He was in a forced labor camp uh, in Hungary. And so, you know, my this is my dad's dad, and he, you know, my dad's a very big guy. I'm a big guy. Uh, my grandfather was six foot three. He was a 
semi-professional soccer player and actually a world-ranked ping pong player. Very few people know that, oh, yes. uh, but he was, so he was a, a very good athlete. So they put him to work, uh, but you know, th they both survived and they actually met each other the day my grandmother got home from surviving the Holocaust. She had no clothes. And so her brother said, Hey, my friend who he was in the labor camp with my grandfather said, you know, my friend had opened up a, a, a small clothing store in town. Let's go get clothes from his store. And so that's where my grandparents met. And then they had my dad years later. Where, where was this? Where do they meet? Uh, in Romania. So back in Romania after the war on the border of Romanian Hungary uh, and Romanian Hungary. And that's where my dad is from. And so, you know, my dad is known as a, a New Yorker because they yeah. came from Romania to Forest Hills, Queens. If you've heard my dad in interviews, he has a thick New York accent, but people don't know his native language is Hungarian. You know, he came to the United States when he was nine years old, not speaking a word of English and having never touched a basketball. You know, it's in, my sister was just in Hungary for three years with her family because he, my, her husband's in the military and there's a special program. And um, the, he was telling me part of the program was that he has to learn Hungarian or he had to, and he knows it now. And it's the Good hardest luck. language. <laughs> it, it's apparently yeah. the, one of the hardest languages, if you know English, to try to learn Hungarian because there's not a relationship there. You know, it's not a romantic language or whatever. It, it, it's so funny you say that. I hope you'll you'll get a copy of my book and you'll read it because I use a lot of Hungarian in the book because that's the language I grew up hearing. And still to this day, when my dad talks to my grandma, they speak in Hungarian. And so I, you know, I don't, I know words and I definitely know the foods because that's what my <laughs> grandmother makes. But uh, I, I know the language and kind of its origins. And to your point, there's no other language like it. And it's funny because people say that to my dad, you know, they say, oh, wow, you know, you speak Hungarian. Like, wow, that's a hard language. And he always says, hey, man, if you grew up speaking Hungarian, like you, you'd speak it too. Like, that's just what I speak, you know. But if you want to learn it as an adult, kudos to your brother-in-law because, yeah, it's a tough language. So your dad, so what? what's the timeline? Was your dad born abroad or was he born in Forest Hills? He was born in Romania. So my dad grew up under communism. You know, he, again, he, he never played basketball. Uh, his life as a kid could not have been more different than mine. You know, I was born outside of New York City. He was an NBA player playing for the Knicks. And actually, my birth was scheduled around the Knicks calendar because he had two road trips. So he <laughs> wanted to be there for my birth and my bris eight days later. You know, so my, my parents actually scheduled my, my arrival around the, the NBA basketball calendar. My dad, you know, didn't grow up that way. I mean, he you know, it's a tough upbringing under communism. And it took my family 10 years to flee Romania. And so my dad came to the United States as a refugee. And actually, when they left Romania, they were initially bound for Israel. But at the last minute, they uh, they were able to come to the United States. And so, uh, you know, it was my dad, his parents and his older brother. And so my dad's brother was eight years older than him. And almost immediately as when they arrived in the United States, my uncle was diagnosed with leukemia. And so he passed away within a year. So that was another, you know, after surviving the Holocaust, after fleeing communism as refugees, you know, then my, my uncle passed away, you know, so my dad had a, had a really tough upbringing and, you know, he, he didn't speak English. He didn't have friends and he had lost his brother. So he just went to the park, like all the other kids in the neighborhood, you know, he just wanted to fit in and he started playing hoops and, you know, it, it took my family to places we couldn't have imagined. Yeah. What, so where did you mostly grow up during your time? What, what, what time when your dad, because he was obviously in three different cities across the span of years. I grew up in northern New Jersey. OK, so because so, he was with the Knicks until I was 15. So until my the end of my freshman year in high school. So I was yeah born and raised in New Jersey. So what is that like when 
so he's with the Knicks and what's it like as being the son of a guy, the guy who runs the Knicks essentially, and is making the trades and making all the personnel decisions when that's happening, like are kids talking to you and telling you, Hey, your dad should go get Michael Jordan. You know what I mean? Like, are they, are they bringing that up to you or, or are you kind of isolated from that a little bit? A hundred percent. They're bringing it up. So, uh, so you said, what's it like? I mean, high level. It's awesome. You know, because I yeah. grew up going to Knicks practices. I knew the players. I went to all the playoff games and all-star games. That is just like, if you love basketball, which we all do, it's an amazing privilege, you know? And I, I always appreciated it and just enjoyed it so much. And, you know, me and my dad sharing that bond together. It's awesome. But to your point, there's, there's another side to it. You know, there's a lot of pressure when you run an NBA team and certainly there are a lot of expectations and a hundred percent when I would go to school and middle school, you know, yeah, get Michael Jordan. Why don't, why don't the Knicks have Reggie Miller? Like the Knicks suck, you know, <laughs> you know, you win, you know, you win 10 games in a row. Everyone, everyone's so happy. You lose three games in a row. Everyone's making comments and it just kind of, you know, the way it goes. Well, I think the almost even the crazier thing is the fact that how, you know, it's different when you were growing up versus now, but in New York, there are all the newspapers, the posts, the daily news are printing, you know, every day rumors about your dad's, you know, future career, right? Like whether he will have a job, right? That's and, right. you know, and whether how successful someone is that's still being printed. Are you, were you reading those things where, was that information getting to you as well? Or, or were you isolated from that? Or did you, could you feel it? You can, you can always feel it, especially since I love the Knicks so much, you know, not only was I, <laughs> yeah, I felt like part of the team, right? I, I obviously wasn't, but since I was part of the Knicks family, but I was also just a huge fan. So I was always following, you know, what's going on and, and everything like that. And so my parents really tried to protect me and my sister from some of that stuff, but it's impossible when you live you know, in and around New York city, not to be exposed to it. And so, yeah, listen, it, it, it's a tough market. And so, uh, that was just something that we had to deal with. And my parents were really honest with us about, you know, that that would happen. And I think it, it made us really close as a family, you know, it kind of makes you a little insular. What, what, what's a Nick's memory, a time at practice, a time at a game, what sticks out to you even now that you can vividly remember? I'll tell you the coolest thing, the coolest thing that ever happened, man. So this was, Allen Houston. So they signed Allen Houston in 1996. And so he was my favorite player. You know, he was a shooting guard. I was a shooting guard. He played at the University of Tennessee, as did my dad. And actually, my dad was the all-time leading scorer at the University of Tennessee until Allen Houston broke his record like 15 years later. And so in my house, we always, always, Allen Houston is the guy who broke dad's record. But then he came (laughs) to the Knicks, you know, and nicest guy, amazing player. And so when the Knicks and the Miami Heat were having these really intense playoff series, Remember with, you know, Tim Hardaway and Alonzo Mourning and Larry Johnson, that that whole thing. Uh, it, it was so intense. And before one of those playoff games, I was in the stands and I usually sat with my dad. He sat kind of like in a box at the top of the arena. But for this game, I was sitting down kind of closer to the court. And, you know, my my family had good tickets because my dad was the GM of the team. So we were pretty close to the court. And as the game was tipping, when the guys are kind of giving their fist pounds and like getting ready to play, I was standing because I was like, it was as if I was going to play in the game. You know, I was like getting ready. And Alan Houston just happened to kind of walk in my direction and we made eye contact. And I knew Alan, you know, because I was always around and and he kind of looked at me and he nodded, you know, and I kind of <laughs> nodded back at him. And then he went to like, you know, give Tim Hardaway a fist pound. And I sat down because we had a family friend there. I said, did you see that? And he said, yeah, I saw that. And like, I, I couldn't even pay attention to the game because I was just thinking about how cool that was. 
Um, I don't remember who won, but I'll never forget that Allen looked at me before the playoffs came. So, and, and you had your own basketball career. You you went to Stanford. So, wh- how, why, why did you choose Stanford? Obviously, it's a great school. What other schools were you thinking about? And what are you weighing in that moment? I mean, you know, that's always a fascinating decision to me is where, you know, if you're going to go to Stanford, pretty good school, you probably had a bunch of other options. So what made you want to go there? It's interesting. And I write about this in depth in my book. So I wanted to go to Stanford to play basketball since I was in seventh grade. My older sister, we visited my grandmother in the Bay Area. My sister took a tour of the campus as she was you know, in high school already looking at colleges. But I saw the place and I said, this is it for me because it's near my grandmother great academics, great basketball. So I really set that goal. Uh, and it was a lofty goal for me. You know, I had really no business setting it at the time, but you know, I grew, my game developed. One thing led to another. I had a little luck, you know, for, to achieve a goal like that, things need to kind of break your way. And they did. Uh, and so I got there and listen, I mean, I, I cared about academics. I was a good student at the time. Well, you know, Stanford had just been to the final four in 1998. They were a number one team in the early 2000s. So it was a really a top program. So I said, listen, for a kid who, who cares about school, wants to play high-level basketball, and wants to be close to his grandmother, that, that was it for me. And so uh, I was, you know, Wisconsin, I, I went to high school in Milwaukee. And so Wisconsin was a, a program that I really, you know, admired and liked. And I looked at some of the Ivies. Uh, I, again, I really cared about academics and, you know, schools like Ohio State and Vanderbilt and Northwestern, uh, but at the University of Tennessee, you know, who, who, you know, where my dad played. But I was like full steam ahead on Stanford, man. I'm, I'm glad I don't have to think about what I would have done because that's where I wanted to be. So who'd you play with at Stanford? What are some of the the guys that you played with on those teams? So Josh Childress was a oh, year yeah. older than me. And so my when I, met, I mentioned at the beginning, we were number one in the country. So my sophomore year, Josh's junior year, we started the season 26-0. and 0. And so we were the number one team. And actually, we we got upset in the second round of the NCAA tournament to Alabama. And I missed the shot at the buzzer that would have tied it. So, <laughs> uh, it, it, listen, do we, you remember uh, that? No, of course. Uh, you the, of course. Again, and that's another thing I, I talk about in depth in the book. I mean, listen, like it's it's a huge disappointment. It's something you never forget, but it's something I wouldn't change because you know I've been in that position. I know what that feels like, and I came back the next year with a vengeance. You know, so that's kind of what what competition is all about. But you know, Brooke and Robin Lopez, and of course, Brooke Lopez, is a, a Nets legend. They came legend. the year, legend, uh, they came the year I left. So we recruited, you know, Brooke and Robin and Landry Fields, but they, I didn't get a chance to play with those guys. What's recruiting, like, wh- when you do, when you recruit guys, wh- I mean, what is that like? Like, what do you do? How do you, how do you convince them? I'm sure they're being thrown around and being told, hey, you should, you know, come here, you should come here. What do you do? How, how do you recruit people to go to Stanford? It should be pretty recruitable to begin with. Stanford, it's a recruitable place, but ultimately, like, it, it needs to be a good fit, right? So you can't really force it. Uh, we would just try to be ourselves, show people who we are and what we're all about. And, you know, you want to say, like, show them a good time, but it's really just like, you know, connecting with people. So, like, when Brooke and Robin would come to games and, you know, we would, we would go to parties, we would hang out, we would eat dinner, we'd go to movies, you know, just... Just to chat, you know, with people as real humans to get to know. Thinking of Brooke and Robin showing up to a party at the age of seven, seventeen, eighteen. Oh, they'll tell you like they used to come with me and and some of my teammates and like you know they they were probably sophomore, junior in high school, size twenty shoes, like you know, like <laughs> uh, yeah, they would come with us and we would you know hang out. But uh, 
yeah, I think different programs do it different. And you've, uh, there's all stories about recruiting and, you know, they can, <laughs> you know, trips can get wild and this and that, but I'll sure. say like, and, and I always tell people this and it's funny m- on my official visit to Stanford, my host is a guy named Joe Kirchhofer, who I played with a very good friend of mine. We were driving around. He was like, Hey man, like you want to check out one of the libraries? I was like, absolutely. This is Stanford. Like, let's, let's see what it's all about. And so we parked, we walked into the library. I was like, this is legit, man. This is legit. And so, uh, you know, that that's Stanford for you, I guess. Listen, I committed, you know, not long after that visit. So something worked. Well, I remember I talked to uh, Landry Fields for a project I did, and he was telling me about how him and Jeremy Lin, who's from Palo Alto, connected over, I think they played Monopoly on their iPads, you know, and like I'm thinking right. of like a Stanford kid and a Harvard kid. They're playing Monopoly. Like, you know, that's just like a different vibe than maybe what may happen on a plane you know, and NBA players, but they said it was like them to Amari, which I loved because he's obviously didn't go to college. And I think Jared Jeffries, I was like that. What a lovely scene that is so quaint to think about. That's a heck of a game, man. I'd like to get, get a a tile piece and get on that board. I think that's, you know, that's a good time. When, When you, so when Brooke was at Stanford, he came out, I'm looking at it now after his sophomore year, I guess was your, your dad was running the wizards at that point. He was. That's right. Do you are you feeding him scouting reports? Are you saying to him? I mean, I know I'm looking at the draft. He, he the Wizards had the 18th pick is when they got JaVale McGee. I remember that growing up a Wizards fan about JaVale McGee. And Brooke was, you know, the 10th pick overall. So they didn't have a shot at him. But like, are you texting information? Are other GMs hitting you up because they know who your dad is and know that you have this insider info? Uh, yeah, yes, to, yes to all of it. I mean, I think to to my dad, like I would definitely be like, you know, because I did play against Brook and Robin, like when yeah. they were young, and you know, they'd come to Stanford, and I and I would just, you know, because I talked to my dad often, we're close as a lot of fathers and sons are, and I would just tell him honestly, like these two are monsters, you know, they're <laughs> they're they're incredible, you know, and I mean, you know, it's funny seeing how they both had such amazing careers, and their games have kind of changed, and I mean, Robin was so athletic. I mean, when he was in high school, early college, like. He was such an amazing athlete and Brooke was also a good athlete, but so skilled. And yeah, I remember telling my, and they're so, they're, they're huge, you know? So I, I remember telling yeah. my dad, like <laughs> these two guys are just the real deal. Uh, and similarly, you know, I have friends all over the league. And so, you know, guys call me all the time and say, Hey, what, you know, what do you know about this person? Or what do you think of this person? And really it's just friends exchanging ideas. You know, there's no, there's no truth to it. It's just data, you know? So I'm sure yeah. if a GM called me and found out what I think he's calling 10 other people and then putting it all <laughs> together and seeing where, where it nets out. Um, what happened to you after Stanford? Cause you went international, right? For basketball. What was that journey like? That's right. And so my first year I played in Germany and it's actually interesting related to my family story. I write in my book, I'm probably the only professional basketball player who had to call his grandmother to ask permission to sign his first contract. Because listen, my grandma's a Holocaust survivor, yeah. you know? And so when my agent called me and said, Hey, I have a great opportunity for you. I, I said, wow, I'm, I'm excited. You know, where are we going? And he said, Germany I said, okay, well, I, I need to call my grandma first, you know? And, uh, I called her right away and I call her on you, which means mother in Hungarian, your brother-in-law will know that. Uh, <laughs> and she, she calls me Tatala, you know, which is like a Yiddish term of endearment. I said on you, you know, I have a great opportunity in Europe. And she said, well, Mazel Tov Tatala, that's wonderful. I said, yeah, but, it, but it's in Germany. And she said, well, what, what's the problem? So I thought that you might not be okay with that. And I'll never forget what she said after that. She said, sons are not responsible for the sins of their fathers. You know, so she knew that you can't blame, 
you know, the current Germany yeah. for what happened in the past, which is, you know, shows her kind of perspective. And so I went to Germany, had a great experience there, played well, uh, did three years in Spain after that, and then four years in Israel. What What is, you know, it would be the Pac-10, right, when you were at Stanford. Yes. How is the environment, the crowds different from Pac-10 basketball to European basketball book back in those days? It's wild in Europe, man. It's wild. Like, <laughs> it, it, you know, and you might have heard stories like I, I played in gyms where like they set off firecrackers and smoke bombs, you know, and, like during the games. And I'm like, is this is this legit? Like, is this OK? Like, you know, it's smoky in here. Are not we supposed to be playing basketball? Uh, you know, there are some times where it gets a little over the line where they like they throw things on the court. But like it's it's different in Europe. They they beat drums, you know, they wait, they have scarves. It's just like a little bit of a different feel. You know, in the Pac-10, I mean, we we had great environments. You know, when you go play in Poly Pavilion at UCLA or at Cal or Arizona, Oregon, you know, I mean, down the line, like all these gyms were very intense. The crowds got into it. They had their little, you know, things they did, the chance that they had, but it wasn't as aggressive as it was in Europe. What did you play with anyone in Europe that, you know, like, because at that time, that feels like peak sort of like, Nicola Chichovili, you know, like yes, Skidisvili. I played against uh, Skidisvili in Spain. You did, absolutely. Yeah. Pre draft, pre him being drafted, oh, post. Oh, okay, way post. Yeah, okay. he was already he was already past his NBA career. Could you pick out guys that you'd be like, you could see they were seventeen years old and seven foot, and be like, that guy's gonna get like he's just gonna get drafted no matter how good he is? Because there was that time when seven footers from Europe was because of Dirk. They were just getting picked up and drafted, even if they didn't play basketball all that well. Yeah, there were there were definitely some guys that you look at where you'd say he has a chance. And I'll tell you, like, I, I played against Ricky Rubio in Spain before the NBA, but I saw him play when he was like 16. And I was like, yep. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That that because he just had it. You know, you could just see. And actually, Luka Doncic, like, I played in that league in Spain, ACB, and he was, you know, he played for Real Madrid, who's like the best team, but he was the MVP at like such a young age and I had never seen him play. But when I heard that he won the MVP of that league at that age, I was like, that that's incredible. It's like he must like, I, I couldn't even comprehend doing that. And the results show in the NBA, right. Where he's one of the most dominant players. So you could definitely like pick up some pretty important signal by seeing these, these guys early in Europe. Well, just to, just to wrap up here, tell people why they should buy the book or, or what the book will mean to them. If they read it, you know, what's, what does this book bring to people? Obviously, it's an incredible story. But why should they pick it up? Absolutely. I mean, listen, it's a basketball story that's bigger than basketball. You know, and so there's a lot of darkness in my family's past, a lot of hard things. But ultimately, it's a story of hope. You know, there's a lot of light, too. And, you know, for someone like my dad to come to America as an immigrant and not speak the language, and he won a gold medal for the United States of America roughly 10 years after arriving in, in the country. You know, so it's just it's a really hopeful story. There's a lot of cool anecdotes about the game, uh, about my dad's journey, about my journey. And there's a lot of really important history. So I think for basketball fans, uh, certainly for New York City basketball fans, because someone asked me, who are the main characters of the book? And New York City was a top five character, you know, because <laughs> that's where my family came that kind of opened their arms to us. My dad was a high school basketball legend in New York City. Then, you know, he played for the Knicks. He was the GM of the Knicks. So uh, for all those reasons, I think that, uh, yeah, it's a book that people will enjoy. And 
you know, it, it reached the number one spot, new releases for its category on Amazon already. So there's really great momentum behind it. So I'm, I'm grateful for, for everyone's support. And yeah, I think, I think folks will like it. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, if you want to check it out, there's a link in the description for the book. It's called by the grace of the game. I think I saw that it's already like number one new on Jewish biographies like that. That's right. That category. That's a big, and it's, you know, it's a big time of the year for Jewish biographies. It being the holidays. So that's an awesome sign to see. Uh, congratulations on just writing the book. Like writing a book is an amazing achievement. You should feel no, pretty thank good. Thank you, man. And I wanted to tell you earlier when I showed the book cover, Ray Allen wrote my foreword. Oh, and, yes. You know, tell, and, so what's the story with that? You know, so obviously Ray is one of the top 75 greatest players in NBA history, but he's all he was also on the board of the Holocaust Museum, appointed by President Obama. And so Holocaust education and remembrance is, is a passion of his and something that he's really made his mission. And I know Ray, my dad was the GM of the Bucks when Ray was a, a young player. And so I've known Ray for 20 years. And when I told him about the book and he didn't really know about my dad's parents' backgrounds, you know, because it's not something my dad talks about publicly much. And so Ray didn't hesitate to to stand by me and to support the story. So I always tell people for as good of it, for as great as of a basketball player as, as he was, he's an even better person. Well, I, and I see within, so you provided like some sort of description of the book and obviously Bernard King had a quote, Adam Silver yep. and Wolf Blitzer. And I love how much Wolf Blitzer loves basketball. I mean, he like goes to more Wizards games than mostly anybody. He loves it. He, he's yeah. a huge fan of the game. And uh, and actually, you know, Wolf Wolf Blitzer's parents are also Holocaust survivors. So it, it's 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 a something that means a lot to him too and he's a close friend and definitely he supported the story. At, you know, you mentioned Adam Silver, Nancy Lieberman, you know, the all-time great oh, uh, yeah. players in the women's game, also a New Yorker from Queens. And so yeah, I've had amazing support and the book's doing so well and so it's 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 been really amazing. All right, man. Thank you so much. This is so cool. Uh, hopefully it becomes the greatest bestseller of all time. I appreciate it. <laughs> no, no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> all right. Thanks, man. All right. Thanks, Mike.